What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. It is Black August, and all month long, Law and Disorder will be bringing you special Black August programming. Today, we are joined by one of the holders of the Black August legacy, Ayana Mashama, or Mama Ayana, as she is known to so many of us, is a natural health, social justice, human rights activist, organizer, and educator. She is currently strategic advisor and founding member of the Bay Area chapter of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, Oakland chapter, co-founder of the Black August Organizing Committee, and what has grown to be known as the Black August Movement. She's co-founded the Black Women's Health and Healing Conferences, Retreats, and Sister Circles. Mama Ayana worked to educate and organize in our movement since she was a teenager and has done years of work around freedom for new African political prisoners and prisoners of war, prisoners of consciousness, and the prison military industrial complex. As a new African medicine woman, she offers herself to community as an organizer, activist, leader of community ceremony, natural health practitioner, herbalist, and aromatherapist. She is currently leading policy advocacy and organizing work and trainings as deputy executive director with Healthy Black Families, Inc. Hello, Mama Ayana. Thank you so much for joining us today. Black August resistance, Kat. Black August resistance, Mama Ayana. I want to start with the Black August origin story. My understanding is that it was first created to honor the fallen freedom fighters George and Jonathan Jackson, James McLean, William Christmas, Katari Golden, and the sole survivor of the August 7th, 1970 courthouse slave rebellion, Rochelle McGee, who's released from prison we are now celebrating. Um, I wanted to walk through the stories of each of these freedom fighters. I mean, I think a lot of my listeners are probably familiar with George and Jonathan Jackson stories more than the others, but why don't we start with them? George and Jonathan Jackson, who were they? Well, George Jackson was a leader in the California prison movement. He was a leader of the Black Gorilla family and um, became known through his writings, uh, prison letters, Dad Brother, prison letters, and Blood in My Eye, a response to the murder of his brother, Jonathan Jackson, who was 17 years old when he led what we call the Marin County Courthouse Rebellion um, and was murdered during that leading. He he worked with the Black Panthers and he was um, a courageous freedom fighter um, to imagine that he stood up and worked to orchestrate an escape from the courthouse at Marin County Courthouse on August 7th, 1970. George Jackson um, was murdered at San Quentin Prison on August 21st, 1971. And what about William Christmas? William Christmas, James McLean, and um, W.L. Nolan were at Soledad Prison, and they were uh, members of the prison movement as well. And they were killed by guards at Soledad in the yard on January 13th, I believe it was 1970. And so they were leaders and educators. W.L. Nolan was George Jackson, one of his mentors, and they were leaders 
that um, were targeted and killed during his so-called fight in the yard. And in response, a prison guard was somehow ended up dead. And George Jackson, Fleeta Drumgo, and Rochelle McGee were charged with the murder of that prison guard. And they became what was known as the Soledad Brothers. And lastly, Katari Golden. Katari Golden, spelled G-A-U-L-D-E-N, was a leader of the Black guerrilla family. And he was the thought leader and originator of the idea of Black August. And the year that it was being initiated, 1978, August 1st, 1978, Katari had an accident in the yard while they were playing football in the yard. And he was transferred from San Quentin prison um, to two other hospitals. And during that transfer, his injuries were compounded and increased. And he ended up being pronounced dead at San Francisco General Hospital. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Mama Ayana Mashama about the legacy, history, origins of Black August, which we are celebrating, acknowledging, commemorating this month. Mama Ayana, how did Black August first manifest inside of the prisons? Well, it it was an idea to to encourage um, resistance through history to bring an attention to the conditions that took place, were taking place in particular in California prison camps. To quote Baba Shaka, each year officially since 1979, we have used the month of August to focus on the oppressive treatment of our brothers and sisters disappeared inside the state-run gulags and concentration camps America calls prisons. It is during this time that we concentrate our efforts to free our mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, uncles, aunts, and all other captive family and friends who have been held in isolation for decade after decade beyond their original sentence. Many of these individuals are held in the sensory deprivation and mind control units called security housing units, SHU, without even the most basic of human rights. So often, and let's just go back a little, during the 60s as we, our liberation movement and the war on Black America increased, Black people were mass incarcerated in unprecedented numbers and disappeared inside these prisons across the United States with no oversight over what happens in these prisons. And so one of the major reasons was to, uh, for Black August was, one, to honor our fallen freedom fighters. Williams Christmas, James McLean, W.L. Nolan, George Jackson, and Jonathan Jackson, and then, of course, Katari Galden. And to educate our community about what was happening in these prisons and to build an understanding of prison resistance by Black, New African, and African, African brothers behind the walls, and to build support for our Black prison movement. 
And because it was a form of resistance and because, you know, the connecting the links to the black guerrilla family, can you talk about the type of repression and retaliation brothers inside faced um, when they would engage in the acknowledgement, the commemoration of the practice of black August? I can. Um, how can I put this? If you were practicing black August, you were often put into isolation if you already weren't. Prison guards attacked and beat our brothers and sisters. There there was torture going on and acts of degradation and inhuman treatment of our brothers and sisters behind the walls, but in particular, our brothers. I believe that Many of our brothers, such as Sangu, such as Fatih, Watani, I I mean, I I could name person after person and those who have died behind the walls that went into segregated housing units, never to see the light a day again because of their beliefs and their practices, because they believed in freedom and liberation and identified themselves as freedom fighters and political prisoners. And understanding that there is a criminalization of our movement and and has been from the beginning, any resistance that we as a people have exhibited has been criminalized as opposed to clearly understanding that we as a people have a right to resist and to resist our oppression by any means necessary. Mama Anna, um, talk about how the practice of Black August made its way to outside of the walls. Sure. So the first year uh, of the practice of Black August um, was initiated after Qatari's death and the brothers, many of them shaved their head, wore, this is in San Quentin, wore Black armbands, uh, it was Ramadan, so in unity with Ramadan, they fasted from sunrise to sunset. They did not buy um, from commissary. They fat, Not only did they fast from food and water from sunrise to sunset, they also did things like gave up smoking and um, media, not, did not watch television, and studied and trained and educated each other. Then. During the course from 1970, August 1978 to August 1979, we began to organize um, in cadres and study groups um, because one of the most important things you can do as you're building leadership is to all be on the same page, have an understanding of the work that you're doing together, the roots of it, a historical analysis that you can share and so we did study together. We studied African liberation movements. We studied uh, liberation movements and freedom movements in the United States. And we um, planned to have Black August, and we did have Black August among our family and community in 1979. So we began to share about it. By 1980, we had... Um, begun, we had had 
started having community events to educate community. We organized house parties. We created Black August Gardens in our backyards so that we could feed each other. We continued with our study groups and we um, fasted, studied, and prayed. I, excuse me, fasted, studied, and um, educated each other and our community together. And we had our first Black, Black August commemoration at Marcus Bookstore in San Francisco um, with members uh, of the National Black Human Rights Coalition, the New African Independence Movement, the Republic of New Africa, the Black Muslim community, and um, community members from throughout the Bay Area. Talk to us about the creation of the Black August Organizing Committee. Well, that um, we had two levels of the Black August Organizing Committee at that time, um, one inside that planned uh, the strategy for Black August um, within the prisons and Black August spread within the prisons. We had a Black August newsletter um, that had articles and information written by um, Black New African prisoners. And we also, um, again, had planned study and organizing um, in above ground in the Bay Area, and then it began to spread in other areas in California. Um, we had our Black August festivals. We had fundraising activities. Uh, we had, um, because part of what happened as we began to organize is there was a wave of repression. So we were fighting police repression. We were um, dealing with having our homes raided and, you know, what we still deal with, right? Being stopped <laughs> um, consistently. And those of us that were um, on probation or parole, having parole searches and uh, parole and probationary holds. Um, but as we were building together in community, we were having um, our commemorative events and things like uh, we had a Black, in 1981, we had a Black August commemorative festival. Um, we had book giveaways, we had food giveaways, and all our fundraising proceeds were distributed among prisoner legal funds and sent to brothers and sisters behind the wall. So that's how we began building Black August. Um, we were had specific, what would you call it, public relations, PR, you know, so that we were working to offset the criminalization of our work and our liberation and um, resistance ideologies. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Mama Ayana Mashama about the legacy, history, origins, practices of Black August. Mama Ayana, it's inside of this context that I met you when I moved to Oakland in 2007. Um at Baba Shaka at Thiden's house. Um, 
we lost him or he transitioned in 2022. And um, I never felt like we did a good enough job on this show um, and talking about who he was and his legacy. And I hope that you could just spend a little bit of time talking about who he was and his legacy and as it pertains specifically to Black August. Hmm. Well, um, Baba Shaka was a new African political prisoner and prisoner of war. He, he had a Pan-African understanding and um, was a revolutionary internationalist. He uh, became politicized in prison. Um, he started with as a member of the Nation of Islam and then became a member of the Black Guerrilla family and moved in leadership in the organization. When I met him, he was working at Marcus Books um, as a printer, and he was a scholar, and he never gave up the fight for his brothers and sisters behind the walls. So he was a key organizer and orchestrator of Black August. Um, we were a collective. We worked together collectively. So um, he was a strong leadership of our collective and um, was consistently uh, fighting repression uh, from the state of California uh, and all the interagencies that worked with them and continued to build and organize the Black August Organizing com um, Committee when most of his comrades were in these segregated housing units. And we're talking people were doing 26 years in segregated housing 30 years in segregated housing, and at no point did he ever give up on anybody. He continued to um, educate uh, our community. He educated many young people and youth and organized Black August events and study groups throughout the years and kept the spirit of Black August alive in community. Um, he had very strong ideology around liberation, revolution, and res resistance, and built unity with organizations around the world. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd almost say it was it is with ferociousness that he fought, mm -hmm. taught, and organized, yeah? He was, a, yeah, he was very fierce. Um, and I mean, when you talk about uh, discipline and unity in community, I would say he was um, very evolved in that. I would also say, you know, as, as a father, he was a very ded dedicated father and community member, brother and uh, husband and son. <laughs> um, he also was a pro prolific writer. So he was always writing letters to and keeping in contact with his comrades behind the walls. And often when someone is a prolific worker, they I, I often see people don't get the credit that they deserve um, for the work that they're doing. And one of the things I've seen with Black August and his comrades, our comrades have been speaking about to this day is how people have 
opportunistically taking taking Black August and turned it into something other than its original intention. And it is a commemoration. It is not a celebration. It is a month-long commemoration with August 1st being dedicated to Katari Galden, August 7th being dedicated to Jonathan Jackson, August 13th being dedicated to W.L., Nolan, James McLean, and William Christmas, and and, um, August 21st being dedicated to George Jackson. And, and as we well know, there's Marcus Garvey's birthday is taking place in August and Nat Turner uprising started in August. So we also think of those acts of freedom and resistance and carrying on the legacy. And he was one of those people that took it very seriously um, for all of his life. I mean, the Black August practice and tradition observes not only the sacrifices of our brothers in prisons and commemorates acts of rebellion and resistance, but also I would say that we also have to commemorate those fallen soldiers whose names we don't know who are not as well known for their actions and their deeds. Shaka was a freedom fighter, no doubt about it. And in his words, it must be clear that the purpose of Black August was created by the founders, as created by the founders, was not to celebrate, but to observe by individual and collective fasting, studying, educating, and community work, as well as political and cultural edutainment. And he truly believed if you weren't talking about prisons and prisoners during Black August, you weren't commemorating Black August, and that monies that are raised during Black August could, should go specifically to prisoners and their families. Mama, talk a little bit more about what it does look like to commemorate Black August on the outside. Like, what does is, what is your day-to-day look like uh, throughout the month of August? As a youth and younger person and even a young elder, I fasted from sunrise to sunset, and that would be no nothing, no food, no water, right? Um, the TV is off. I try to stay off of social media. I do use it for work. Um, and um, don't listen to commercial radio. Read and study and um, do physical activity to keep my body healthier. Um, When I first began to practice Black August, um, we also had our study groups where we made a list of books that we're studying. So um, right now, what am I reading? I'm actually going through... um, uh, writings by Black women right now. In particular, I'm actually reading what we carry, Stories Black Women Don't Tell. It's an anthology that we did um, at Healthy Black Families of Black women's writings. Um, but on the... I, so I don't fast with from water anymore. 
um, as an elder. Um, I've did that for close to 40 years. I now have water and uh, juices during the day, during Black August, and not eating during the day. I have a regular movement routine where I'm doing, you know, exercise and stretching, no alcohol, and like I said, no television, um, no radio from sunrise to sunset, and watching Black written, Black produced movies and documentaries. Uh, and I really encourage people to start their own educational study groups and study writings of resistance and liberation. Educate your family and community and loved ones. So education is part of it. We're doing that right now, huh, Kat? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Y'all, you're listening to Lawn Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Mamayana Mashama about Black August. Mamayana, you talked about the the 1st, the 7th, the 13th, the 21st, um, otherwise known as, as Black August Flea Days. What shifts about Black August practices on those days commemorating those specific freedom fighters? As freedom fighters, many people believe that you it is, it is important to know your limits, build your limits, and to evolve and grow through that process into even more disciplined and focused on your freedom. Some of the other things uh, that happen on flea days are, are a, a specific focus on the actions of those whose lives we commemorate on the 1st, the 7th, the 13th, and the 21st. Um, I would also encourage people, maybe on those days you visit a prisoner or you write a prisoner or you do a fundraiser um, in the honor of our fallen freedom fighters. Today is Dr. Matulu Shakur's birthday. It's a perfect day to write a someone in prison to reach out. I know all of us know someone that was removed from our lives through the courts and the prison industrial complex. Reach out, bring them back into your life. Um, Mama Anna, say more about that. Say more about the importance of us communicating with our brothers and sisters on the other side of the wall. Yeah. I mean, that's how I got involved, right? I remember um, being in a conversation with Shaka at Marcus Books. I was uh, organizing a Saturday school there and was talking about the issues in our community. He said, you know, you can actually work directly and help educate and work with people in prison. And so at that point, I began writing and visiting. So communication, we have people that have no communication with hardly anybody in the course of their time in prison. As I said before, we have no oversight over what is happening. We have millions of our people in these prisons throughout the United States and no oversight over what is happening to them. And that's some of the work that we did and organized during Black August. We had a prison crisis committee that responded to crisis um, 
with our prisoners and our family members with prisoners behind the wall. We organize visits and we um, organize writing and we, we still do that. I mean, when you are sitting in a cell that is maybe six feet by eight feet at the biggest eight by eight, right? Or eight by 10. I don't even think they make them that big though. Um, every day of your life, when you are in isolation and when you're in isolation, that's no phone calls. You get, get to see outside through a plexiglass roof in a 10 by 10 block, cinder block, so-called uh, outdoor space. Um, often the lights are on 24 hours a day. You are constantly being harassed and dehumanized by the the gatekeepers, the doorkeepers, um, and you have no real means of communication with the outside world except for who writes you, except for, for who visits you. This is how we keep our each other sane and hum humane. This is how we connect with and spread love to one another. This is how we create acts of atonement. And as Dr. Matulu would say, acts of truth and reconciliation through communication with each other. This is how we continue to organize together. This is how we create people who come out of prison like Wakili Moody and continue to organize and create humanity and create change and create positive, progressive movement in our community. This is an opportunity. When you write a prisoner, it's an opportunity for you to grow and evolve and them to grow and evolve and to keep them in contact with the outside world. And Mama, I am building upon that. Talk about the fact that we can't be talking about liberation on the outside if we're not talking about liberation on the inside and the connection, the critical connection, <laughs> um, if we ever going to get free. Yeah, you can, you can do that as well. And that's true. If we're ever going to, first of all, the, our family and community in prison is just that. They're still our family. They're still our community. We have been conditioned to think of our people in prison as less than and separate than. But the truth is, if we don't work to have a liberation consciousness and unity behind the walls and in the streets, we are going to continue to deal with what happens when a person spends 5, 10, 15, 30 years in those conditions and then are released with, with no family, no support system, no further education, no evolution around the ideals and values that helps a person grow and evolve. And again, the unity between our family and community in prison and what we do in the street and making that connection is really important. We have some of the most brilliant and evolved human beings that are put into prison. We have our children. Let's just talk about it then. 
<clears throat> our children are put into these schools where we, again, don't have any oversight. They are educated without our input. They are held. We, we allow these schools to hold our children from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. and beyond. We, again, rarely hold our school boards accountable for what happens to our children. And then we're surprised there's a school to prison pipeline. And then when they are, are in these juvenile detention facilities, are when they're in tr transitional age youth facilities, when they end up in prison and often are railroaded into prison, often are set up and sent to prison. And then we have no, again, no community oversight. The one way we can create community oversight is to have unity to begin to, begin to build or continue to build around the connection between the conditions in our community, conditions on our streets, and conditions in our prisons. Some of the most powerful and evolved actions have happened from our prisoners. For example, the prison hunger strikes, which became um, initiated from uh, Pelican Bay shoe and took off nationally. For same thing in the Pelican Bay shoe under leadership of Fatih and Sangu and others, they created the agreement to end hostilities. That was a interracial agreement to end violence among races, so-called races behind the walls. What if we took that agreement and began to implement it here in these streets, in Oakland, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, New York, um, throughout the nation? Yeah, and my, and my understanding is that that you know folks are working to do just that, and um, I mean, and and that's a piece of what terrifies the state, right? About connecting mm -hmm. us, organizing out here with the organizing with with our comrades and brothers and sisters behind the wall. And you're right. I mean, I've experienced that fear. I've been blocked from um, visit visiting people that I had relationships with um, for fear that of that connection, right? Um, there, it's like, basically they're looking at prison resistance, like slave rebellions, you know, and that these rebellions might spread among the people as they should. It's, it's, look, things are not going to get any better for any of us, unless we are uni united, come to what I call strategic agreement and begin to build together. We have to have things in place. We have, as I said before, we have people that have been in prison 5, 10, 15, 25, 30 years who come out and have no support systems, right? As we need to begin to put things in place that we will have unity, the level of knowledge and connection that can come from our family and community in prison and into the streets at the level of unity and action that can happen um, could shift and change 
the culture that we are currently living in. But I know, you know, one of the reasons that we started Black August was to begin to shift consciousness and culture around how we're living, right? And how we're living together and um, the connection between what happens in prisons and what happens inside, what happens in liberation movements and how we are suppressed and oppressed and jailed. Many of us die in there. Yeah, and the, and and I think tying that all back to the very reason prisons and jails exist in the first place, and I believe it was Comrade George yes. Jackson who said something akin to "I'm not going to get the right words right, right," but they are they are intentionally locking up our revolutionaries. They are locking up our freedom fighters. It is an interrupter uh, right. uh, of the freedom struggle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sundiata Akoli in his book, "The Prison: The History of the." Um, New African prison movement speaks directly to that. Uh, Matulu Shakur wrote a paper um, on the, uh, what did they call it? The genocidal effects of um, low intensity warfare and counterinsurgency on the black New African community that speaks directly to in 1962, a Dr. Shine pulled, caught together the heads of the bureaus of prisons and they created a program to, brainwash um, people in prison and initiated across the country with the plan of mass incarceration of Black people, with the plan of shifting our community and our culture, with the plan of disrupting our liberation movement. Kat, you're so right. I mean, we can, there, how can I put it? The level of unity that we create among ourselves, the level of strategic unity that takes planning, um, sharing knowledge, information, discipline, and um, education um, can shift how things are happening for us. We don't have to continue to participate in the status quo. We can change how we work together, how we interact together, how we build together, what community looks like together, what culture looks like together. Mama, you know, we you you talked a little bit earlier about you know the ways in which I I say commodification because I've seen Black August literally commodified, but but the oh, ways yeah. in which right folks have distorted the meaning. The other thing that I've seen though is well intentioned youngsters, right, wanting mm-hmm. to commemorate Black August. And doing it wrong. And (laughs) wondering about, right. This isn't a, this isn't a question I wrote down and I want, I want to get it right because really what I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. to is we're dealing with young folks with a bunch of stuff coming at them, a bunch of shortened attention spans, spans, the, the, the lack of discipline structure, right? All of the things that white supremacy has exacerbated for these younger generations, but they're grasping for things. And how do we communicate the values of Black August to our, our, our young folks? Um, because I, I think we're losing a piece of, of the discipline. We're losing the political education. We're losing the physical training. We're losing that. As I'm looking at these 20-some organizers coming in, well, 20-something-year-olds calling themselves organizers that just bounced out of college. Right, honey. And are educated through the um, nonprofit industrial complex, right? Um, Who can't talk liberation and resistance in in the way that Black August was created to 
and also want to be authentic, right? And so there is that level of opportunism that has come through um, others that may not feel comfortable embracing the truth of Black August, but want to appear authentic. Um, And so how do we educate one another? Well, there has to be direct communication. We can't, social media, you know, so here's my thoughts when you ask me that question. Um, Young people create the culture pretty much, right? So it is a matter of one-on-one. If you see someone practicing it wrong, how do we approach them? I'm going through that myself. I'm actually in the middle of writing a piece about it, Kat, because it's like I'm getting these emails and I'm going to these websites and I'm seeing people getting it totally wrong. And often there's nothing written about prisons or prison movements at all. And when people are talking about Black August, it's Black August yoga, you know, Black August camping, um, Black August (laughs) celebrations. And um, people want to, want to, I mean, to me, that shows a desire to be engaged on the level of resistance and liberation, on the level of fighting oppression in all of its forms. Um, and not wanting to necessarily collaborate with it. So how do we shift it? We have to engage these very young people you're talking about and have them begin to create and and bring their own cultural and social science to it to and see what comes out. For example, with Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, um, some young people were talking to Nehanda in prison about Black August and I think Matulu had kind of reinitiated a consciousness around it. And Nehanda said, well, you guys create something. So they created Black August hip hop, right? And had these hip hop concerts where they would, there was information and education interwoven in. And then they took it on the road and took it to places like Cuba, Angola, Venezuela, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of how we bring it back to center and continue to spread the word has to be engaging our young people to become part of it and using their leadership, their ideals. I think there's nothing wrong with merging our value systems. We have to have some trust of young people, but at the same time, keeping the truth present. And that, and that's, um, has been, I think, difficult for some people because it's really, so we are, what, three generations from the the Black Panther Party and the Republic of New Africa, right? And um, the Revolutionary Action Movement, some of these um, more hardcore ide- ide- ideologies around resisting oppression, around building liberation, around revolution and socialism, right? Um, And African communalism, some of the ideas that came out of our movement um, were generations away from them. So how do we bring people back to those ideals and values and create ways so they can be heard and learned um, 
within our current cultural and social structures. Right. And I know that Malcolm X uh, Grassroots has a list of activities that they're going to, you all are going to be engaged in this month. I don't have time to go through them now, but Mm -hmm. give folks the website where they can go um, learn about what's happening. It's www.mxgm.org. And then on the 15th, there'll be a study session um, and you can find go to the website. And I really encourage community, again, if you know somebody in prison or jail, write them. If you know somebody recently home from prison or jail, give them a call. If you are doing commemorating Black August, if you're celebrating Black August, turn it into a commemoration. And if you're commemorating Black August, then make sure that you are educating people around prisons and prisoners and what's happening to our people behind the walls. Make sure you are bringing in uh, resistance to oppression um, in a way that educates and activates. And if you are raising money, that money should go to um, a prison organization or prisoner or prison legal defense fund. All right, Mamayana, I've got to leave it there. Y'all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Today, we've been in conversation with Ayana Mashama, or Mama Ayana, as she's known to so many of us, a natural health, social justice, human rights activist, organizer, and educator. She is currently strategic advisor and founding member of the Bay Area chapter of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, Oakland chapter, co-founder of the Black August Organizing Committee, and what has been known as the Black August Movement. Mamayana, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, Kat, I love you. I love you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask in the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.